Credit Union Overtime Podcast. My name is Cassidy, and I am your podcast host for the Credit Union Webinar Network. Today's episode answers some common questions from a webinar presented by Eric Cook with WSI Digital and is titled, Measure It to Manage It, Understanding Analytics and How to Determine Online Success. Today's speaker operates his own digital marketing agency focused on helping banking industry clients connect and engage with their customers online through creative website development and secure hosting digital advertising, content marketing, and social strategies. If you want to learn more about this topic after the podcast, please see the notes for a registration link and a coupon for 10% off the on-demand webinar. Without further ado, let's jump right in. All right. Thank you so much for coming on with us today, Eric. My pleasure. It's uh, it's a joy to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, so we're going to just jump right into our questions. So when looking at Google Analytics by searching site colon URL, and you see the numbers are increasing, does that mean the website itself is growing? Or why are those numbers growing? It's a good question. Um, so the, the command that you can put into Google with site colon and then your website address behind it forces Google to only look at that URL. So if you put site colon www.espn.com or whatever, I'm trying to think of a generic um, a generic URL, that'll tell you in the eyes of Google how many pages it finds, or how many resources actually, because it looks for pages, PDFs, um, anything that's considered a resource in the eyes of Google, it'll tell you how many it's found. And it is only for that particular URL. It doesn't look outside, doesn't look at your social media or any other links that are coming to you from third-party platforms. And the important part in the way to grow that is by adding content and resources to your website. Because in the eyes of Google, more information um, fresher, uh, more recent information is always better than less and or stagnant or stale or old info. So it's a great way that you can check how much your activity, if you are hopefully doing it by adding content to your website through blogs and FAQs and resources and other sorts of content, it's getting, it's getting picked up by and recognized by Google. It's also a great way to spy on your competition. So the financial institution down the street, down the road, across the state, whatever, um, or any other competitors that you might deem by that by that matter, you can check theirs and record that month over month. And if you're not presenting or sharing as much information as your competition, then it's uh, it's something that you're going to want to maybe pick up the pace on, so you can tell when your competition is uh, is maybe outpacing you with content and taking a, a front seat in their SEO efforts. Okay. So basically what you're saying is like that Google analytics is only showing the institution's website. It's not showing something like Facebook, for example. Right. And just to be clear, the site colon with the parameter is, is not anything that you would find inside of Google analytics. You just go to a browser and type in site colon, um, you go to Google and you do that search. You don't need analytics installed in order for that to give you information. Although I would suspect the majority of folks listening to this podcast probably have analytics installed on their site. Um, that opens up another can of worms. So you ask one simple question and of course I have to answer it long-windedly. 
Um, analytics does give you the ability if you want to install the tracking script on other sites to be able to pull that information in. Now, I don't think you can get your tracking script on Facebook or on LinkedIn, but if you've got an online application platform or maybe your blog is on a completely different system where your website is on one platform and maybe you've launched a separate blog on WordPress or Squarespace, you can bring in some of that data so you can look at multiple properties inside of analytics. But the site colon command that you do in a Google search is basically just saying, hey, Google, tell me how many resources you find for this URL. But it's only for that specific URL, that website address. Okay, so that totally makes sense. So basically, that's kind of like how our website is. Like we have our blog on our website, but then we use a different platform to put the podcast on. Is it, Are you saying we can yep. link those two together? Inside of analytics, you certainly can do that. And if you wanted to see how many resources Google found for your podcast, you would just do site colon with whatever URL is uh, associated with your podcast. And then if you wanted to see how many resources Google sees for your website, you would just change the URL and say, okay, site colon, and then give me this. And it would give you that information. And then, of course, you could build out some sort of a spreadsheet and you could aggregate that. So maybe you've got your website on one, your blogs on one, you've got a resource center on one, you've got your podcast on one. Um, you could aggregate all of those in an Excel file or something and then get a total number. Um, or maybe all of those are under one URL and you'd be able to look at those just with the site colon inquiry, sometimes referred to as an x-ray search, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, so does Google rank video the same as written content? Google, from an SEO perspective, um, likes content that people like. Because at the end of the day, what the SEO algorithm is trying to do is it's trying to approximate or represent what a human is going to be interested in seeing because if an SEO algorithm brings you content that a person's not interested in reading or seeing or watching or listening to, at, at, at some point, people aren't going to engage and they're going to go to a different browser um, or not browser. They're going to go to a different search engine that's going to give them better results. Google knows that people like video. So using video on your website is a way to provide rich content to people that are coming to your site because Google knows, hey, if somebody goes to your website and they have an option to read a resource page or they read a resource page with an embedded video that talks about it, that has some images that give screenshots that explain it, that second, the latter, with a video, with some images, maybe a quick little audio snippet, is going to be a more attractive page to a reader, a visitor, because it's going to give them more to pay attention to. So by that assumption, and we don't know exactly what's in the Google algorithm because they don't tell us it's secret. And, uh, and so we don't know, kind of like the recipe for Coca-Cola. It's locked away in a vault. Nobody knows it. But we know based off of testing and other sorts of industry research that if you can incorporate video on your website, embedding it through YouTube or a Vimeo link, we know that that will help all things being considered, the organic rankings of that page and that content, because Google sees that as being a really valuable, interesting page 
to a typical visitor, a human being, as it were. Okay, that totally makes sense. So that actually just made me think of a question for you. So basically, (laughs) yes. Uh, So basically with that, you're saying like, it's a good thing to link. Should you only be linking to your website or is it okay to link to things that are outside of your website? What would you kind of recommend there? You know, when I started doing web development way back in the day, um, like the mid nineties, probably before um, you were even born, although I'm not going to ask a lady her age. My wife told me that's not a good thing to do. But when we started building websites back in the day, there was very much the trend where you would create like a community links page and you would link to the local chamber of commerce and maybe the local city pages and you'd link to other resources. That's not necessarily a best practice these days because you're linking people off of your website and inviting them to leave. And of course, in the financial industry, anytime that happens, we have to put a speed bump in place. So it just creates kind of a big question as to why that's being done. Um, For YouTube and Vimeo and those sorts of things, we recommend you just embed the video directly on the site so you don't even have to leave to go to YouTube to watch the video. And that way they can just consume that video right there and then continue browsing around your website and exploring all the other products and services or articles that you have. But it does make sense for uh, a, a website to link out If you can get a reciprocal link back, and sometimes what will happen is we'll work with an institution that will put together maybe a series of testimonials for some clients and talk about the client and the relationship with that FI and to be able to then link to their business page, link to their Facebook profile. But we'll also then say, you know, on your Facebook profile, Mr. Business, Mrs. Business, if you would link back to the website to say, hey, we were recently featured on this institution's blog as a customer success story. Click here to read it. And then you can get inbound links, which are also a signal of value and trust to Google and help with your SEO to be able to have the local chamber, maybe the hospital, if you're volunteering on their board, to be able to have them linking back to your website. That's a sign of inbound traffic. And if it's coming from a credible resource like a you know, chamber organization or a nonprofit or maybe a government entity that can even further boost your search rankings because people might link to you if you link to them. So link reciprocity certainly is a, is a strategy that you could embrace, but it does require a little elbow grease because they won't do it automatically. So you're going to have to reach out and ask for the link and make sure that they don't say just click here to visit XYZ institution that you give them the keywords and the phrases that you want them to link to. Um, All of that kind of goes into an SEO strategy. You know, that's really good to know because I actually kind of thought it was still similar to where you could like link off and that was a good thing. But it's good to know that, you know, you want them to be linking back to you. Yep. Yep. So if a financial institution has both a Google and Bing page for their business locations, do you recommend having a Nextdoor page as well? Um, I remember this question actually came up on the webinar and I've done a little bit more research and I've, I've not found anything that says definitively black or white, you should or you shouldn't. Because in the world of local optimization, which is what this really 
is referring to as far as your local place. Sometimes it's referred to as NAP management, NAP, which stands for name, address, and phone number. There are almost a hundred different reputable destinations out there that have listings for businesses of all different kinds. So we're familiar, obviously, with Google and Bing, but you've got Nextdoor, you've got Kudzu, you got City Search, you got YP.com, you got Yellow Pages, all of these different platforms that are out there. Going down that rabbit hole and claiming your Nextdoor page, claiming your this page, claiming can be somewhat time consuming. And, and they say the 80-20 rule, 80% of your results are going to be from 20% of your effort. Well, a vast majority of your results are going to come from probably your Google My Business or your Google Business Profile. Then you're going to go to Bing. You'll see certainly diminishing returns on Nextdoor and all these others. But it is very important in the eyes of Google that any of those instances have consistent information. So all of those have the same phone number, have the same web address, have the same address, have the same institution name. So um, to yet kind of use a bank as an example, we've seen examples where it's been First National Bank shows up in one area. First National Bank and Trust is another area. First National Bank with an ampersand instead of and spelled out entirely trust. In the eyes of Google, those are three completely separate instances. And so you want to make sure you identify those. And there's tools out there that you can use and services that you can subscribe to that will help you with your NAP management. So I guess the short answer is it's not urgently important unless you go to Nextdoor and you find that your information is incorrect or incomplete. And then you want to make sure that you get that fixed. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say priority number one is to go out and create a bunch of next door pages. You can probably get better return on your time of investment, looking at ways to enhance the existing pages on Google and Bing with content, adding articles, making sure photos are there, other sorts of things, reviewing for reviews, responding to reviews. Um, and then that can be on the down the line of list of priorities, if you will. Well, that makes 100% sense to me. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the Google Data Studio and how this can be utilized for financial institutions? Absolutely. So Google Data Studio is a free service that allows for anybody to create visualizations, uh, dashboards, if you will, of their Google Analytics data. So if you are configuring Google Analytics correctly, you likely are capturing information about visitors and time on site and page views. And if you really get uh, a little more granular into analytics, you can create events and other sorts of activities and triggers inside of Google Data Studio, which I think I already mentioned it, but I'll say it again, is free. So the price is right. You can go into Data Studio, you can connect your analytics account, and then it provides you with a handful of templates that you can pick from or you can build your own. Um, it gives you the ability to go in and pull that data out so that it's in the dashboard. And then for senior management or maybe your board or even your boss, they don't want to dive into analytics because that can be rather intimidating, and confusing because there's so much information in there. 
you can work with identifying what are the key things that we need to be reporting on our website. Then you build those into Google Data Studio, and then you simply provide the link. And when they look at the link, they're able to take a look at the metrics. And when the dates change and the months roll into the next month, the information is dynamic and it automatically gets updated. You can set it to doing month over month comparisons or year over year comparisons. It's a pretty powerful tool. The only downside of Google Data Studio is once you get excited about that and you want to maybe pull in your Facebook data or your LinkedIn data or you want to pull in some other content, it has plugins and other third parties that will cost you subscription fees. Some of them are a little more expensive than others. And at that point, it may make sense to take a look at some more formalized dashboard and reporting tools that have all of those connectors already included. But it's certainly a great way to get your feet wet in the overall area of data and reporting and just producing a dashboard that can help give meaningful metrics within the institution of ways to make decisions and seeing the needle move, hopefully. Okay, so that just made me think of another question. So do you think it's necessary to get this information from like your Facebook and your LinkedIn? Or do you think that you could pretty much just use Google Data Google Data Studio by itself as a standalone? So it's one of those crawl, walk, run situations. If your institution, if you're listening to this, and the concept of getting into Google Data Studio and building a dashboard is a little intimidating. I would, you know, not feel like you got to eat the whole elephant. You're just going to do a nibble here or there and get a little bit comfortable with the process. I would suggest because it's free, it's connecting to data that you already have. It's not overly sophisticated. You spend a little time in there, you'll figure out kind of the gist of how it works. I would suggest starting with Google Data Studio if you don't have anything in place now and at least providing information about your website. There are areas inside of Google Analytics where you can provide information as to social uh, traffic. So you can go in, you could create a dashboard widget in Data Studio that says, okay, where are we getting our social traffic from? And we can pull that data in and you can see how much traffic is coming to your website from Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or even TikTok, if you're so brave to be venturing into that new platform. Then once you get people asking for more, well, how do we know what people are doing on Facebook? Or how do we know how many connections or followers we have on LinkedIn? Then that'll give you a sign that maybe you need to start looking for a more sophisticated tool that can pull some of that data in. So then you can present one dashboard view that gives the website, social, and then you could pull in some other institution data such as, you know, accounts per household and number of loans open versus closed and checking accounts originated, not pulling in any sort of customer or member data. So you keep personally identifiable information out, but just the numbers and the performance then you can start tracking some things and looking for correlation between Facebook posts, website traffic, and checking account activity. Um, but that's maybe top of the mountain. We're just at the base getting ready to climb this thing. So don't feel like you got to jump right to the top right at the beginning. Get familiar with the process first and then let your organization really drive how much more information you're going to need to be able to provide. At least that's my suggestion. <laughs> well, thank you. In your opinion, do photos or videos tend to gain more engagement on social media? 
Uh, statistically speaking, the, at least, and I've attended social media marketing world with social media examiner for uh, a number of years now. Um, they do a report that is, uh, very well respected and at social media marketing world this year in San Diego, it was revealed that video is outperforming, not surprisingly, um, imagery. But one of the things that was a little bit of a shocker to me and most of the people in the room and Michael Stelzner revealed top performing posts, especially as it relates to Facebook, is the most engaging and interaction that was seen on Facebook or engagement and interaction that was seen on Facebook was for plain text posts that were short in length and could leverage the colored background. And we probably all have seen them. And if you go into Facebook, you can click on the little cards and it'll give you a bunch of backgrounds. And I can make a post background just bright purple. And I can put in just a very limited amount of text and it stays bright purple with white text. If you type too much, then the purple disappears and it just turns into a regular text post. So you have to be somewhat concise with what you want to say. But organizations of all different types that use those posts tended to see more engagement on them. My thought is because they stood out from the newsfeed. You're browsing through your newsfeed and you see a giant purple post with white text on it that's short and concise and easy to read. That's going to pull you into the comments. You're going to want to read more about what's going on. And as an institution, you could put that in there as a hey, what do you think about, or what's everybody doing for 4th of July, which is about the time when we're recording this podcast. And it could pull people in and cause them to want to enter and, you know, going to barbecue or spending time on the pontoon with family or whatever the case is. And while an image might look nice or a video might be something fun to watch, using that bright colored background with a call to action text to pull people in, might be uh, an item worth experimenting with and working that strategy into your weekly process and just taking a look at your analytics inside of insights and seeing, well, is this really moving the needle? Are we really getting some better engagement and supporting or reinforcing what the social media marketing world folks reported in their, uh, in their survey results? So, I know I was somewhat shocked when they said a text only posts with a bright colored background. And I just, I know exactly what they're talking about, but I didn't realize they were as powerful as what they are. Yeah. I mean, I, my aunt posts those all the time. Granted, she's not an institution, but I'm like, Oh Lord, lady, you use this a lot. <laughs> yeah. Too much of a good thing is not always a good thing either. So you want to make sure, like I said, sprinkle it in with a mixture of, you know, text posts, images, video. Um, of course, video, you've got live and recorded. And I would say, as long as I'm chasing the video squirrel here, so bear with me. When you post video out to any social platform, the purpose is always to take the video and upload it to the platform itself. You want to resist the urge of just posting a link to your YouTube channel of a video that you just released because Facebook's going to see that much like a website these days sees that as a link away from the website and because you're presenting something that could cause a Facebook user to leave Facebook and go out to YouTube, they're going to downplay that in the algorithm and likely suppress visibility because they don't want you to do that. But if you take that same video, upload it to YouTube, upload it to Vimeo, upload it to LinkedIn, upload it to 
Facebook, you're not going to be penalized for duplicate content and all of the platforms will appreciate that they have the video on their system. So when someone watches it, they'd never leave that platform. You're going to have a much greater likelihood that that information is going to get seen and, and engaged with. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, we don't ever really want people to leave our website because then it means they're not going to get something with us. So <laughs> Exactly. And Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg feels the same way. He doesn't want you to leave Facebook. You get inside of his little meta ecosystem. He's going to do his darndest to keep you there. I know. I totally forgot that they had renamed it meta for a while. And I was like, why does everybody keep talking about that? So, um, should Canva be used as an asset in social media marketing or are there, are there any other similar alternative or alternatives that could be used better? Do you want to try saying that again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I've had a couple of them. Usually, uh, I said something earlier. Usually when I say crawl, walk, run, I end up coming across sounding like one of the cartoon characters from the Bugs Bunny um, <laughs> series. So, um, but yeah, I would say Canva, if you're not familiar with Canva and depending on who's listening to this podcast, if you are a, uh, a professionally trained or have received any sort of um, education or, or guidance on uh, higher end graphics artists, uh, platforms like InDesign, for example, or others from Adobe, Canva sometimes can be a four-letter word because it uh, it's an online web-based graphics and now video editing tool providing you with a bunch of templates and other sorts of things. You can swap out backgrounds and images and clip art and fonts and um, just a, a, a myriad of opportunities. And the purist that develops graphics um, sees that uh, oftentimes as being too easy, you know, and it's not sophisticated enough. But I've spoken with a few who I will not name here to protect their identity and their and their pride that have acknowledged that Canva has really upped its game. And even the free version, which gives you access to quite a bit of info, we use the paid version here within our office, which we use ourselves and on behalf of our clients. It can be a very, very powerful tool to create imagery, to create um, graphics, to create video. It has the capability of providing multiple sizes and layouts. So if you need to create a video or an image for Twitter versus Instagram versus Facebook, you can set the default images or a, a banner for your website. It gives you a tremendous amount of power and flexibility, and it's very easy to learn. There's a number of videos out on YouTube where you just can type in Canva training examples or how to use Canva. Um, I think that's probably one of the first places to go. There's a number of other alternatives that are out there that you can chase that provide similar services. There's other platforms that focus exclusively on video platforms like promo and in video and wave that if you just want to do video, maybe that's a direction to go and see which one of those platforms might feel more comfortable for you. But as far as creating graphics for your web, for your social, um, pretty much anything, Canva is uh, is our go-to and uh, strongly, strongly recommend it. 
yeah, I use Canva all the time. I was actually just using it yesterday. So yeah, I, yeah, I, it's really I, I easy feel, to have it too. <laughs> I, I feel like with the number of times we reference that, I uh, I should come up with some sort of an affiliate link and uh, make two or three cents every time somebody signs up for the service at our recommendation. But uh, totally unpaid, unsolicited endorsement. It's just a great tool. Makes it super easy. Um, we do a lot of things in Canva that look very impressive that if you had to design them from scratch would take you countless number of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving on from Canva, now let's move on to another platform. Can you recommend any programs that integrate with WordPress? Well, there's a ton of programs that integrate with WordPress. Um and that's one of the, I guess, blessings and the curses that I would say when it comes to WordPress. So just for clarification, WordPress, for everyone's benefit, I'm sure we've all heard of it before, but WordPress really cut its teeth and, and became um, very popular as a blogging platform. And its original intent was to be a blogging platform. I don't think the creators of WordPress really had the vision to see what it's become where websites and entire properties are being built off of a WordPress backbone. There is a very rich and robust plugin community for WordPress. And it's probably beyond the scope of today's conversation because we go on and on and on and on and on. But there are a number of plugins that you can get for WordPress that'll do things like image optimization and SEO and content and just if there's something that you want your web property to do, there's probably a plugin or some sort of a module for it. The downside that I would say is if you're someone like me that likes shiny objects and you come across a plugin or an extension that you think is awesome and you install it and then you're like, yeah, I'm not going to really use that. Never mind. I'm looking at the browser bar of my Chrome and all the extensions that I've loaded here and some of them I've not used in months. Anytime you install one of those extensions or plugins into WordPress, you now have to take on the responsibility of keeping it updated and patched because as WordPress gets improved and security releases get pushed out, you need to make sure that you're installing those as quickly as possible because WordPress is not only the world's most popular content management system, it's probably one of the most compromised because people put so much information um, out there and they use it, but then they don't pay attention to the care and feeding and the updating and the patching and the security of it, which creates vulnerabilities and then bad guys get in. And then that's not what you want for your institution's website. So you need to be very careful and purposeful on what extra add-ons or extensions that you're using and make sure that you've got a good patch management strategy in place. I would say that's more important than determining all the different ones that are out there and making sure that when you find one, that you pick one that's reputable, look for reviews and ratings, look at the software producer that's actually manufactured the item that you're looking at and what other tools have they created? What's their patch? What's their update schedule? What versions are they compatible with? Um, there's a lot to be thinking about as it relates to integrating anything with your content management system, but certainly WordPress provides the largest candy jar, cookie jar of, uh, of all the content platforms that are out there. So I kind of answered that question, but kind of didn't, but I think it was okay. 
No, that that makes sense. So like you're mentioning that you have to kind of go through and update all of these things. It, is it possible to just remove old plugins that you're no longer using or are you kind of just stuck Absolutely. with what you Absolutely. Yeah, you, you can certainly do that. We had a conversation with an institution that was looking to do a revamp and they had 68 plugins installed and probably 10 of them were being used. So you've got 58 plugins that are not being used at all. Who knows when they were updated. And even if they're not actively being used on your website because you're not integrating it, the plugin's still there. So that creates a potential backdoor for a hacker that may know the secret code to compromise or to get access to that plugin through some sort of a JavaScript exploit or any other nerdy thing that I am resisting the urge to say right now. Um, so if you're not using it, it's best just to go ahead, not just turn it off, but just delete it, remove it from your site entirely so that the risk is just completely eliminated. And if you decide down the road, you know what, we really want that SEO plugin back, well, then you just reinstall it. And chances are you're going to get a newer version when you reinstall it and re-implement it anyway. Um, but yeah, if you're not using it, I would strongly suggest you just take them right off the site, and not even have them there. How often would you recommend like making sure everything is up to date? Do you have like a specific time frame you recommend checking in on that or well, is it just kind of yeah i mean and that's largely going to depend on the content platform that you use um our office actually doesn't use wordpress when we build institutions websites we actually use a separate platform that is not as popular from a consumer marketplace perspective but it's also much much less a target of hackers because just the the number of instances just doesn't happen to be as high. So if you're using a, a platform that's very popular like WordPress, I would say you should have something monitoring almost on a daily basis. I mean, really, it, it sounds uh, a little bit much. There are web hosting providers out there that you can pay a little extra for and they'll monitor and do patching for you, which is great. Um, they do tend to get a little expensive, but at the end of the day, it's your digital branch and most people are interacting with you digitally versus coming into your lobbies and your branches by a factor of 10 or more. So you really don't want to put any risk of something bad happening on your website. So if you've got a partner that can have some sort of a virtual patching or a maintenance or monitoring program in place, I would strongly suggest looking at that or taking into consideration when you are ready to do a website update are there other platforms out there that can provide you equal functionality, but less of a threat vector risk and uh, still have module functionality and customization and other sorts of things? There's a number of, uh, of other platforms out there that are more enterprise grade and robust that are worthy of consideration. So. Well, thank you so much. That was an awesome answer. So our last and final question is, did... Aww. <laughs> Did Meta remove the when your fans are online feature? Um, and I've tried to dig around on that too. I know that was one of the questions that came up on our webinar. And um, I've not seen really any documentation of that. Um, used to be where you could go into insights and you could take a look at some of the demographic information and see where people were um 
not where people were coming from, but when they're likely browsing online, they've gone through as as most platforms have. Google has, even from an advertising perspective, which is completely not where this podcast is going, but even from an advertising perspective, privacy is becoming much more of an important thing and did another webinar with you folks on the cookie diet and talking about cookies and tracking and employ and uh, the ability to employ tracking services to know what's going on and remarketing and retargeting. A lot of that information is being removed under the auspices of privacy because while it's not that the platforms don't want us to know what's going on because the more we know what's going on, the more we're going to use the platform. We might advertise on it, which means we're going to spend money with Mr. Zuckerberg and anybody else. Um, but a lot of that information has been rolled back and put behind the curtain, if you will, so that you can't get access to it. And I think that's one of the ones that has uh, has fallen victim to the increased privacy focus and attention, unfortunately. But there's there's other ways that you you may be able to track that and maybe not specifically your fans, but you can, you know, third party platforms will do um, research reports. And there's a lot of people out there that are doing testing and gathering data and then compiling their own reports. So some of that user trends, user profiles, best time to use Facebook and, and whatnot if you don't have access to those, it really just revolves around testing and determining, you know, if we post in the morning, does that get better results than the afternoon? If we post on the weekend, is that better than the weekday? And using your own fans and followers and audience to really see what works best for your organization. That's ultimately the best way to go about determining when your followers are online is based off of their engagement and interaction with your content. Oh, well, you know, that's good to know. I mean, it's good that they're kind of protecting the consumers at some points. <laughs> exactly. yep. I know. I know uh, and I feel like uh, I think this is the the third time I've mentioned Zuckerberg's name in this podcast. But I, I know they often get thrown under the bus, sometimes justifiably uh, around privacy and other sorts of suspicious practices. But there are things that they are doing um, to uh you know, at least limit some of that information. Now, what they're doing with it themselves behind the scenes is a whole nother, a whole nother can of worms. But, uh, you know, as far as giving unscrupulous marketers access to data to abuse and ruin it for everybody else, uh, those are things that are slowly being taken away um, from the platform so that people can't abuse the information. Well, um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on with me today. Um, and just so everybody knows, we're going to throw Eric's website link onto the podcast show notes so you guys can check this out, check his website out and reach out to him if you have any questions about anything we went over today. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real joy chatting with you. And uh, I'll look forward to maybe doing another one or two of these down the road with you. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day, hon. <laughs> Thank you. See you later. Okay, bye. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can register for the on-demand webinar titled Measure It to Manage It, Understanding Analytics and How to Determine Online Success. The on-demand webinar is available now to view and download. Podcast listeners can also enter coupon code online success to their shopping cart for 10% off the webinar. More details can be found in the episode notes. You can also find links to check out Eric's website, 
Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or your favorite podcast platform for the next episode of Credit Union Overtime. Before I close the podcast, I'd like to thank our state association partners, Eric Cook, WSI Digital, and you, the listener. Be safe and take care. <laughs>